All right, back from his sabbatical, we have Danny Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. You know, let me just underline that uh, plug that Michael gave about the uh, teachers for the fall. Th- there is probably no, no ministry in this church that is more valuable than the children's ministry. Uh, what, what goes on in the classrooms uh, on Sunday mornings and Saturday nights, it, it's not just to keep the kids busy so the important stuff can go on in here. Maybe it's the other way around. We just keep you busy so so the important stuff can go on with our children. The The future of, of this church, the future of, of the church in general, is based on how we invest, how we make disciples out of the, the, the children. And I, I want to encourage you, if you've not considered, if you've not thought about investing your life in the, the kids of our church, I, I, I want to encourage you to do that today. Don't just walk out of the building today thinking, well, someone else will volunteer for this fall. But there's such a great, not just responsibility, but a, a wonderful privilege that we have to be able to invest in the kids. So I, I, I really do encourage you to just ask the Lord, is that something that you might want me to do? Go up to the table, Mary Jo, our, our children's pastor will be there, and she can let you know how that might work for you, either to be a teacher or how you can be an assistant uh, in the fall. So think about that. You know, as we look at the scriptures each week, it's real important that we understand that, that we're not just doing a Bible study because it's kind of nice or it's what churches ought to do, but the, the scriptures really ought to hold a mirror up before us. Uh, They provide a way for us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, examine our culture. And and you remember last week, for instance, in in Galatians chapter 2, one of the things that the Apostle Paul did in that second chapter of of that letter is he, he dealt with the issue of racism and bigotry and how it was creeping in to the, the first century church. And, and certainly it's still, as we know, as we see this weekend, bigotry, racism is, is alive and well in our culture as well. And, and it's important that as a, as a church, as individuals, and as biblical Christians, that we stand against and recognize and oppose racism and bigotry and condemn what we, what we see this weekend going on in, in Charlottesville. It's, it's not that we do that because we want to be culturally hip or culturally relevant. We do it because we're biblical Christians. And the scriptures make it clear. And we, we saw that last week uh, through the study of that chapter, that our value and our worth isn't rooted in our race. It's not rooted in, in gender. Our value and our worth as individuals before God isn't based on, on what color we are. Our value and our worth before God, the scriptures teach, is rooted in Jesus and what he's done. And today we continue, and and Paul continues, to allow us to examine ourselves, examine our church, as he takes on another issue. 
And just as last week, he pointed out that that value and worth is not based in gender, it's not based in color, it's not based in race. This week, we see Paul address the fact that our value and our worth in God's eyes, and therefore it should be our attitude as well, is not based in what we do. It's not based in what we are outwardly, our skin color, our gender. It's not based in what we do. This week we'll see Paul talking about the issue of legalism, just as last week he talked about racism and how the Jews look down on the Gentiles. But this week we see that our value, our worth, is not based on how good we are. It's not based in how much we don't sin or what sins we do commit. Our value, our worth, as we'll see today, is rooted in what Jesus did and His unconditional love for us and not what we do. So let's go ahead and we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 3. And, and I, I just want us to be a church, don't you? A church that is informed by the Scripture, that allows the Scripture to speak to us the heart of God, the purposes of God, and allow it to be like that mirror that we hold in front of us and say, Jesus, let me see myself where my thoughts, my attitudes may be uh, tilted this way or that. So to just give a, a bit of a reminder, the background of the book, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, so I'm going to be rather quick. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was, as an apostle, not one of the twelve, but as an apostle called by God, Paul was a, 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 a missionary. That's what apostles were. They planted churches. And after a dramatic conversion in Paul's life, he entered into a number, three missionary journeys, and his primary call was to the Gentile churches. And in the mid to late 40s, soon after, really relatively soon after Jesus was crucified and, and buried and, and resurrected, Paul had gone into what is now present-day Turkey, and in a region that was called Galatia, he planted a number of churches. And this letter, the letter to the Galatians, wasn't written to a city, it was written to a region and the churches that were planted by Paul in that region, again, in the late 40s. Now within six, seven years after he planted those churches, what occurred is that from Jerusalem primarily, there were Jewish believers that came there that began to say, listen, churches in Galatia, what Paul taught you about coming to Christ, believing and putting your faith in what he has done for you is just fine. But if you want to really please God, if you want to really be in right standing and have a, and maintain your relationship with God, what you have to do, even though you're Gentiles, is take on the Jewish law. You need to begin to keep the laws that are, are dictated in the, in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, the, the 600 plus laws that are, are, are written about in, the, in what we see as the Old Testament. Galatians, you need to begin to keep the law in order to maintain your right standing before God, in order to maintain that relationship with God. And this was legalism. It was seeing that our worth is based in what we do. 
So Paul sees this heresy creeping into the church and immediately he, he, he writes this letter. It's a very direct letter in order to challenge that, that young church and here 2,000 years later to challenge us to examine ourselves, our hearts, how we view for ourselves, for one another, how we view what gains a right relationship? What maintains a relationship with God? Is it what we do or what we don't do? Or is it what he's done that allows us to come boldly into his presence? So this letter speaks to this issue of why was the law given? And how were we to to have confidence that God wants relationship with us. So jumping right into this passage, let's go ahead. We're in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he begins, not so gently, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying, you know, it's like you're under some kind of spell. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, did you come into this relationship, receive the Spirit of God because you did good works? Or by believing, by putting your faith in the gospel, the good news that you heard? He goes on in verse 3 and says, Are you so foolish after beginning by the means, by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, Or by your believing what you heard. Paul's contending that I delivered the gospel to you. The good news to you. That Jesus' love for you. Acceptance of you. Was secured not by how good you are. Or what you do. But what he has done. The Galatian churches received that truth. That good news. And now they're beginning to shift. Now they're beginning to, to hear. And begin to believe that we need to keep God's, uh, the, the, the law in order to maintain this right relationship. That our standing before God is not unconditional based on his unconditional love. It's based on how good we are. Then Paul goes on in verse 6 and argues, also, uh, so also Abraham, in other words, in the same way Abraham, the father of, of the Jewish faith, the father of, of our faith, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He points out that that Abraham, who was the progenitor of, of, of the Jewish faith, Abraham believed, and because of his faith in God's goodness, God credited him as being righteous. Abraham wasn't a fully righteous man. No one is. But because Abraham believed in God's goodness, in God's truth, in God's love, 
believed it was unconditional, though he had a, a debt of sin because he, like us, are sinners, God credited to, to forgiveness that, that covered that sin. In Genesis chapter 12, we read about Abraham, who was a, a, a polytheist. Abraham was minding his own business. And all of a sudden, God reached into time and space and took hold of his life and said, I have purposes for your life and set him aside and drew him in to the purposes and the plans of God, drew him out of his, his earthly existence so he could see his life as having value beyond just what is there before him. He was minding his own business, unaware of God, but suddenly God finds him and makes his life significant, gives his life significance, enters into this unconditional covenant with Abraham, making promises to Abraham. And declared him as righteous, even though in his own behavior he wasn't righteous, but he declared him, he credited him, he saw him as righteous because of God's goodness, not because of Abraham's. See, we all have this tendency of, of wanting to add to the gospel. Yes, God loves us, but somehow I want to feel like I, I earned it. I want, to, I want to deserve it. I want to gain it through my good works. There's something in us that is drawn to wanting to perform for relationship. We do that actually with God or with people. We do that, I'm sure, in our hearts, in our church. That, that subtly, in our minds, we think, well, look, yeah, we, look at how we dress. God must really love that. He, we're special. We're, we're not like those, those other churches who dress up. God doesn't care how we dress. He loves us. Whether we, we wear a tuxedo or wear a tuxedo. You know, look, look at how we worship. Obviously, God loves the freedom and, and how we express ourselves. God doesn't care whether we worship with Gregorian chants. God doesn't care whether we worship him with instruments or with no instruments. It's not what we do that makes us have value and, and worthy of his love. It's what he's done. We have our pet doctrines our pet sins. You know, we, we don't do that. Oh, we might do this, but, but we don't do that. And therefore, that makes us more special than these others. There's something in us that wants to think that we can earn our right standing. And Paul says, listen, did you begin by faith, by believing what God did and his unconditional love, and now you think somehow you're going to maintain and, and carry on your Christian life by good works, he says it's not that way. We read on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, understand then that those who have faith, faith in what God did, those who have faith are children of Abraham. It's not those who do the law. It's those who have faith in what God has done that are children of Abraham. Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. 
and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. When he said to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. Even when God set Abraham aside and entered into this covenant with Abraham, he made him promises. He entered into a a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm promising you three things. I'm promising you land. I'm promising you descendants. I'm going to to give you descendants. Abraham and his wife Sarah were, were, were without children at the time. And then he said, and I promise through your descendants, more specifically through a descendant of yours, all the nations of the world, all the nations will be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah, who would come not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. See, this notion of being justified by faith by believing and not by the works of the law, wasn't something new. It wasn't as if God gave the law uh, to Moses in the Old Covenant, gave the law to the Jews, and then realized, oh, this isn't working. I'll go to plan B, and I'll make it by faith. But God knew that just as Abraham was justified by faith alone, that because of what one of Abraham's descendants would accomplish as the Messiah, as he gave his life and died for us, for our sins, God knew that he'd continue this, this, this foundation that our right standing with him is based on what he's done and not our good works. Verse 11, Paul goes on to say, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because the righteous will live by faith. No one who lives by the law, no one who who rests their confidence that they can come boldly into God's presence because they keep the law, because they do not sin, at least certain sins, no one is justified by the law. No one is made just as if they hadn't sinned by their own efforts. But just as with Abraham, the righteous, those who are right in God's eyes, will live by faith, by trust, by leaning on what he's done. The reason why as we gather on, on Sunday mornings, the reason why we can come boldly into God's presence isn't because you had a pretty good week. Isn't because you, you didn't slip up on the way to church, as is in the, the tradition for many of us where you argue with your spouse or your kids on the way to church. The reason why we boldly come into God's presence is because God sees us and says, your worth is not rooted in your behavior. Your worth and your value and the fact that I love you and I have chosen you is based on my choice, God says. On the fact that I have attributed to you, I have credited to you the righteousness of Christ. Oh, but Lord, I'm not righteous. But God says, I have taken his righteousness and deposited 
it into your account, so to speak. We go on living by grace through faith, just as we came to Christ by grace through faith. God doing for us what we cannot do ourselves. And this is why the gospel is good news. Our value is not rooted in what we are, what race, what gender. Our value is not rooted in what we do and how good we are. Does that mean God doesn't care whether you do right or wrong? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying, though, is that God says, you are worthy to come into my presence. You are my child. You are my sons and you're my daughters. And you are recipients of my unconditional love, regardless of what you do. Regardless of what you do. All too often what happens in our lives is when we, when we stumble, when we fall, when, when, whether it's our attitudes or our words, our thoughts, our behavior just falls short of what we know God would want from us and for us. What often happens is we begin to step back from, from God. We begin to think that we have to sort of ramp up again. We have to earn our way back into his good graces. We have to put ourselves in the doghouse to show him how sorry we are, how sad we are, how remorseful we are for that stumble. But what the scriptures teach is that when we fall, what we need to do, recognizing we're walking in the wrong direction, away from him, all we have to do is turn around and return right where we belong. Knowing that we're his sons and his daughters and we're acceptable, not by the works of the law, not justified by our own effort, but justified by what he's done. You know, maybe, maybe you grew up in a family where when you, when you blew it, when you fell short of what your parents wanted, you were in the doghouse. You had to sort of, you know, be guilty, act guilty, be ashamed for a certain period of time, stay out of their, their, the way and, and, and not, not get into their, uh, into their space for a while until they sort of said, okay, you can come back in. That may be how your home was, but that's not how the family of God works. Because we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And that is the clear teaching of Scripture. It's not because it might make us feel good. It's because that's what Jesus has taught. That's what the Scriptures teach, both Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse or the penalty of the law. By becoming a curse for us. By taking on the penalty for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, relationship, intimacy, 
access to the very presence of God and his purposes. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This, this term, re, being redeemed, is, is so rich. What, what it speaks to is, the, is something that was extremely common in the first century. You realize in the first century culture that, that the scriptures were, were written to, the first century churches, and 50%, it's estimated that 50% of all individuals in the, in the Roman Empire were, were slaves. Some sold themselves into slavery to get out of debt. Some were born into slavery. Families, generation after generation, were slaves. And from time to time, let's say there was a, a person whose, whose parent was a slave or whose child was a slave, from time to time, that person would be able to save up enough money and go to the slave market and buy their child, to buy their parent, their, their friend out of slavery. Purchase out of slavery that person who they cared about. And it was called, they, what was said is that they had redeemed that individual. They had purchased that individual out of the slave market of sin. And this is the phrase that Paul uses. He says that we have been redeemed. We've been purchased. That Christ has purchased us from the slavery we have to our own brokenness and our own fallenness and the, the sin that, that, that befalls us. We have been purchased. And what was the price? Was it our good works? Our being good enough? We were purchased by what Jesus did. The price of our redemption was the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, guaranteed and proven by his resurrection. And, and see, that's why the gospel is good news that we have been redeemed, that we have been purchased. John chapter 15, Jesus said, I, I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. And I'm sure the disciples, they, they were a motley crew, looked at each other, or at least looked at the other guys and said, how about him though? Him? Yeah, I call you friends. But he doesn't deserve it. You know, Matthew, he's a tax gatherer. He's a traitor to our country. He's not worth it. Jesus is saying, I declare him worthy. But, but how about Simon the Zealot? He's a radical. I declare him worthy. Well, how about you? How about what, what, what I know is in my heart? We've been redeemed. He's purchased us, not because we deserve it, but because of the great love of God that attributes to us worth and value.
So this begs the question, why on earth, if our value and our worth before God is not based on on keeping the law, if indeed those Judaizers that were saying to the churches in Galatia that you need to to keep the the law in order to, to continue on as Christians, if that's not true, then it begs the question, then why did God give the law? And Paul raises that question if we skip down to verse 19. He says, why then was the law given at all if, it, if it's not there to help us have and maintain relationship? Why was it given? Was it a mistake? Was it a false start? Was it a good try? But man can, couldn't pull it off. So God said, well, okay, let me try another way. Let me, let me uh, send my son to die on a cross. No. The reason the law was given, it says in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Some of your translations might interpret the word guardian as, as tutor. The law was our tutor. The Lord was our guardian. We might use the word nanny today. See, a tutor wasn't just someone who who taught a class. A tutor was someone who who a family would hire to, to guide their children, to protect their children. The tutor would, would oftentimes live with the family. And, and ensure that that child grew up and received both from the tutor and from others the instruction that, that, that they needed. The tutor would make sure the child would, would get to the different classes, whether it be at a, at a temple or in the town square, would be exposed to what would help them grow and mature. The tutor protected them. Help them from being distracted and being wounded and injured, whether it be by someone else or by, their, by themselves. And Paul says the, the law was a tutor. It protected us and it, it got us what was needed and where we needed to be to grow and to mature. Why was the law given? To make sure that we, we arrived at that place that we each were uniquely designed to occupy. To that place that was prepared for us. The, the law was a tutor, a guardian, to help ensure that we could see our lives and live our lives as part of, of his story. Inserted in his plans and his purposes. Jesus said, I'm a king. I've come as as king of kings, lord of lords, to bring and establish my kingdom and my purposes and my kind intentions on earth. And he wants us to to be drawn in, to be part of those plans and purposes. And Paul is saying that the law helps us 
become part of his story. Because it's all too easy that we become distracted and we live as though this, this life is just about our little stories, our, our career, our hobbies, our, our friends, our family, our church. But the Lord says, those are fine in and of themselves, but it's far too small to be worthy of your life. We are being drawn into his story and not be preoccupied in our little stories. We are, we are being taught how our stories, our careers, our families fit into what he's doing. So we see things very differently. You see, you're, you're part of God's story, folks. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you woke up tomorrow morning and you, you turned the page of your Bible and, and there it was talking about you and it said, and I raised up Dan and Carmen to take on the care of, of these two little boys and to realize, oh my gosh, this isn't just circumstances in my life, but it's God's call. When I, when I Dan, Carmen, when you, when you take that sharp object out of, out of one of their hands or when you change your clothes or give them a bath or put them to bed, you're not just doing something that you need to do. You're part of what God has planned and making disciples. Jim and Joanne, when you drive across the country here in a few weeks to be able to realize you're part of God's story. You're not just doing it because you're able or you want to, but God has raised you up to be ambassadors and to show his kindness, reflect his goodness as you travel the country. We turn the next page of the Bible and there, it, and I raised up Dan Haddon. Dan, where are you? Somewhere. It's, Dan, you're, you're not a carpenter just because God's fond of carpenters. It's so that you can reflect the integrity and the goodness and the generosity of God. You see, we are part of his story. And the gospel, what makes it good news, is that our entryway into his story into his purposes is based on what he's done and not us somehow deserving it or earning it. So how is it? I mean, you look at verse 25, I'm not sure if we have a slide for that, but in Galatians 3.25 it says, now that faith has come, we no longer are under a guardian. I mean, the purpose of the law as a guardian is to to bring us to Christ. So how is it that law brings us to Christ? To answer that question, we're going to finish up here in about seven or eight minutes. How the law brings us to Christ is clearly laid out, actually, in another one of Paul's letters in the book of Romans. And the law has really four purposes. 
The first purpose, what Paul teaches, teaches us in Romans, is that the law shows us what sin is. Romans 7, verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is there something wrong with the law? Is it bad in that we're set free from the law? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the law is in the problem. The law describes God's heart. It describes his intentions for our lives. The law outlines, if you will, gives us markers so that we can better stay on the path, just like those reflectors on the poles on the side of a highway help you know where you're headed. But no one who drives down the highway is looking at those reflectors and driving towards them and, and making sure that the reflectors guide our way. One who drives looks down the road and knows the destination and looks ahead in order to get there. The reflectors just let us know, hey, you're totally off the road if you go over here. But the scriptures say, no, we fix our eyes on Jesus. He's what? The author and the perfecter of our faith. The law shows us what sin is. But we don't focus on the law. We fix our eyes on Christ and the path that's before us. The second purpose of the law is actually to cause us to sin more. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 8. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It wasn't functional. It wasn't active. But once I was alive apart, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang up to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. See, there's something in every one of us that reacts and pushes back against God's law. There's something in us that is, is a born rebel. I mean, if you, if you don't believe that the law causes us to sin more, do an experiment this October. On Halloween, make a sign, put it on your front lawn, and on that sign say, do not throw eggs at this house. <laughs> and then that Sunday, come and tell me that you don't think the law produces more sin, not less sin. See, there's something in us that pushes back against the law. So the law showed us what sin was, and actually the law produced more sin, more rebellion in us. The third purpose of the law is described in Romans 7, verse 15 and 24. In Romans 7, 15, it says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I... What, what I, I do what I hate to do. And then in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me 
from this body that is subject to death. Paul is driven to despair. He's tried to keep the law. He's tried to obey the law. But it just produces even more sin. As that, that rebellion rises up. And as he sees, he's such a, a failure as we all are in being perfect. And it drives us to this place where we say, the, the good things I want to do, I'm not doing. The very things I don't want to do, I, I am doing. What, who can free me from this? Who can deliver me? And finally, we come to the fourth purpose of the law. The ultimate purpose of the law. Where Paul says in Romans 7, 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind, you know, in my desires, I, I, I want to be a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And then in verse 1, Therefore there is now just a little bit of condemnation from God. Right? No. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because, Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What Jesus did is he said, listen, you, you are unable to keep the law. You, you're broken, you're damaged, but you are the focus of my affection. You are the focus of my attention. And I love you unconditionally. And the more we understand God's unconditional love, the more we will want to please him. The more we try to please him and keep our eyes on the law, the more we'll fail. There, there are Christians, there are pastors, there are parents who are afraid that if we suddenly come to realize that we are unconditionally loved, then what will be the motivation to obey God's purposes and plans? Well, the motivation was never meant to be fear. The motivation is always meant to be love. As we understand the great love of God for us, who would not want to pursue Him? As we understand that even when we fail, and fail miserably over and over again in the same way that he says, come close. I love you. And I'll work in your life. And we say, but Lord, I, I, I just can't do what is right. He says, come close and let me work in you, conforming you, changing you, transforming you. So you could be the person I called you to be. So you can be part, not of your little story, but you can be part of the gospel story, the story of what I'm doing with you, to you, and through you. Why don't you stand up? You know, as I said, the scriptures are like a mirror. They, they hold, they're held up before us so we can see ourselves. And what is clearly true, if you're like me, is I understand truth. I understand 
good theology. I've taught this before, but I recognize even though my, my head is a, a fairly good theologian, my heart is a horrible theologian. And that is to say, though I know the truth, that God loves me unconditionally, not based on what I do, what I see in my life is the tendency that when I fail to stay away from God, to punish myself, and, and maybe it is to prove to God that I'm really sorry by holding myself back from him for a while. And then when I've done that long enough, then I can sort of slink back into his good graces. And there are some of you whose Christian life has been like that. You, you deal with guilt, you deal with shame, and I believe today God wants to, God wants to just do some adjusting in our in our hearts and in our minds and lift that guilt, lift that shame. Not saying it didn't matter what you did, but saying you're forgiven and I love you and I don't see you according to your sin. I see you as my child, my son, my daughter. And God wants to, to do that kind of a cleansing in our hearts and our minds. And, and I believe there are also people among us who, who just need to to see and, and have a, a, a renewed mind and a renewed vision of how your life, whether it's changing diapers, teaching children, whether it's working in a, a cubicle downtown, whatever it may be, how your life is part of his grand purposes. You just need to, to see, Lord, how am I included in what you're doing here on earth. And I believe God wants to do that kind of adjustment as well. Certainly in a group this size, there are people here who have spiritual needs, physical needs, emotional needs. We're gonna take the remainder of our time. I want you to come forward right now and whether you need to just be cleansed of guilt or shame, whether you want to just be renewed in the vision of being in, included in his, in his good news, his big story, or whether you have another need, come forward and let's just let God minister to one another. Let's make sure everybody that comes to the front has someone praying for him, okay? Why don't you come forward? Some prayers up front. Who's coming up and coming alongside these folks? Some men, some women.
Father, we ask that you would come right now and just imprint your truth in our hearts and our minds. Lord, let us see our lives from your perspective. Lord, we we put aside guilt and shame, not because we're not guilty, but because you have called us righteous in your eyes because of what your son Jesus has done. Come and transform us, Lord, so we can be the men and the women you've called us to be. Not by our own effort, but by the the grace of your spirit within us. Father, come and help us to see our lives from your perspective. That we're part of your story. Whether we, we go to school or teach school, whether we work in the top floor or in a little cubicle, whether we're changing diapers or changing lives, Lord, let us see that our life has value because even before our days were begun, you called us, you chose us, and you created us for your purposes. Come, Holy Spirit, bring wholeness and healing, transformation. Take hold of our lives and work in us what is pleasing to you. Lord, let your word be as a mirror to us that we could examine our hearts, examine our attitudes, whether it be issues of of prejudice or bigotry, issues of legalism. And Lord, won't you change us, root out what is displeasing to you, rewrite our hearts, transform us, Lord, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Folks, God bless you. Let's go ahead and walk in the freedom that God calls us, doing those things that he's called us to. We'll see you next Sunday. Drop by the children's ministry table. Be a discipler of our young people. God bless you all.